Hello, this is Evan Schneider, and welcome to Let's Talk About, produced by the Pace Center for Civic Engagement at Princeton University. Let's Talk About is a series of interviews that engages Princeton University faculty and community partners at the intersection of their own work and the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's Talk About Health, Care, and the COVID-19 Pandemic. Our guest today is Professor Heather Howard. Heather Howard is a lecturer in public affairs at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University and a faculty affiliate at the Center for Health and Wellbeing. She also serves as the Director of State Health and Value Strategies, a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation-funded program that provides technical assistance to support state efforts to enhance the value of healthcare by improving population health and reforming the delivery of healthcare services. Her courses have touched on topics from the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, state and local health policy, public health and politics, and the social determinants of health. Hi, Heather. How are you today? Hi, Evan. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing well. Good. Thank you for All joining us. All things considered. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hop right in and um, start with the first question. Um, so you have a, like a really fascinating and varied career. Um, in healthcare policy. So I was hoping you'd start off by just telling us a little bit about what you study and um, what drew you to this field. So thanks for asking and um, maybe making it sound more exciting than my background is, but I, uh, I am basically at heart a policy wonk and all of my jobs before coming to Princeton and joining the faculty at the Woodrow Wilson School were in government. And that's where my heart really has been. And I have worked in various levels of government and um, at the federal, state, and local level. And I've also worked in the executive branch, in the legislative branch, and actually in the judicial branch because I'm a lawyer by training. So I've seen government from all different angles. And uh, But I think what I'm most passionate about now and that I work on now is state and local health policy. So I did work at the White House in the Clinton administration on the Domestic Policy Council, and I worked in the House Representatives in the Senate. But then um, what, what sort of brought me here is that I was working for then-Senator John Corzine of New Jersey. I was his chief of staff, and he ran for governor. And he convinced me to move up to New Jersey. I'm actually from New York, New York originally, but uh, he convinced me that the action was at the state level. And I am now a complete convert to that. I really think so much of what's happening now that's exciting, especially in health policy, but in social policy generally is happening at the state and local level. So um, I was his chief of policy for, for when he was governor, and then I became the commissioner of health and senior services for New Jersey. And then I joined the faculty here at the Woodrow Wilson School, and I now run a program for that's funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, helping states implement health reforms. And so that can vary from helping a state expand Medicaid under Obamacare um, to helping a state um, um, reach uh, uninsured populations and uh, helping them navigate the new new terrain of new federal new federal guidance. A whole a whole range of issues that I work on helping states try and improve healthcare for their for their um, for their residents. And um, and then, you know, based on that work, research and studying what states are doing, I teach classes at Princeton on um, health policy. So based on my experience as a state official and my work researching and, and writing about what's going on at the state level, I'm, I'm able to teach a, you know, a, some 
really interesting classes uh, in this field. I'm teaching a class on the Affordable Care Act this semester, an undergraduate seminar, where we're spending the whole semester studying sort of the origins of the Affordable Care Act and um, and now all the challenges in its implementation. The, the ACA just celebrated its 10th anniversary. So we were reflecting wow. on how it's changed the healthcare system, right? I mean, it's amazing, 10 years. Yet, when we study broad um, social policy change, we often assume that it gets um, entrenched sooner than it does. And so here we are 10 years out and it's still being litigated, whether it's constitutional, we have President Trump um, in the courts trying to get it invalidated. So we're 10 years out, but it's far from entrenched in our social policy fabric. So I teach that. This semester I also taught a graduate seminar on state and local health policy, which was very timely. We were talking about what what powers does a state have to promote health and to protect health? And obviously now that's implicated in, in our response to COVID-19. Um, so it's really fun for me to bring my experience in government to the Woodrow Wilson School and then to be able to teach health policy to students who maybe want to go into, um, into health policy or just maybe are interested in domestic policy generally. And health policy is such a salient issue now given the Affordable Care Act debates, and now obviously the public health challenges with the pandemic. Well, your, uh, your expertise is extremely timely for, <laughs> for what's going on in the world. I actually um, wanted to ask a really quick follow-up question. Given that you, your expertise is around you know, states and specifically thinking about the ACA and Medicaid expansion, is there any difference you're seeing from state to state between states who have expanded and haven't expanded and the way they're responding to this crisis? Absolutely. I mean, that to me is the through line in all of this is that leading up to the ACA, where you lived largely determined what kind of health care you had access to. We do not have a universal or national system of health care like other countries, developed countries do. And the ACA was an attempt to, to correct that and to raise the floor. And if you live in New Jersey or Alabama or Oregon, you would have this access to the same kind of health healthcare. Um, so that's what the ACA envisioned, but because of a wrinkle of some of this litigation about the ACA, the Supreme Court made the, the um, Medicaid expansion optional. And we have 14 out of the 50 states have not expanded Medicaid. So if you live in one of those 14 states, you may not have access to health insurance. And it means so that, you know, that's a problem even when we don't have a pandemic, but it's a particular problem. So let's take the state of Florida, for example, um, you know, where they're seeing um, significant caseload. Um, you know, one thing we've learned is that one individual's health is only as good as their neighbors or the people they interact with. So if you're on the beach in Florida and the beaches until last week were open, um, if a significant portion of the population didn't have access to health care and was sick and was afraid to go to the doctor to get treated because they didn't have health care, um, that affects your health care even if you do have access to health care. So we're seeing significant variation across the states because of those historical inequities. You bring those forward and you're seeing variation. And then I think the political culture has affected how states are responding. So states like New York and New Jersey have been very aggressive, but we still have a handful of states that don't even have stay-at-home orders. Um, and so we know that viruses don't know state boundaries. And if you have, you know, if a state is not as quick to respond, we may be doing everything we can in New Jersey, but 
we can't do everything. We can't keep out viruses if other states aren't practicing the same social distancing and their population is flying or driving to New Jersey. Yeah, my home state is Oklahoma. So it's one state that has not expanded Medicaid and does not have a stay-at-home order. It's a terrible combination. That's right. So, you know, in academics, we're going to have a lot of time to look back and reflect on I mean, this has been happening now between Tennessee and Kentucky, a state that shares a border, a long border. Kentucky moved much more quickly to respond to the COVID crisis, and Kentucky had um, expanded Medicaid and had broader uh, a broader social safety net. I, and we've been able to see thus far that there's been more COVID cases in um, Tennessee because, in part, we can theorize now, and we're you know over time we're going to be able to test this they responded, um, they were more, they were slower to respond. So um, going forward, I think we're gonna want to social scientists, we're gonna wanna be studying how these state level decisions have affected population health. Yeah. Well, so, so given your expertise um, around all of these, uh, you know, aspects of the problem that's going on right now, I just wonder if you could give your perspective um, on, if, if you wanted the, average American citizen to know one thing right now? What, what would you want them to know? Or may, maybe two or three things? Well, I think one thing I want people to know is that what you're seeing in the news about what's being reported about the status of the outbreak um, isn't the full picture, right? That even when we, I'm worried that we're starting to see good news, which I really welcome, that we may be seeing a flattening of the curve and that people are going to respond by letting their guard down. And that the, that the good news we're seeing now is a result of the sacrifices people have been making and the social distancing, and, and, and which is great, but we need to keep making those sacrifices because this, is, this outbreak is not over and um, there's going to be a lag in, in the impact on, and, and so we have to keep social distancing. So I think there's this question of people understanding how a, an epidemic spreads um, I don't think people you know, appreciate that. So people, I'm worried people are going to be quick to pull back on some of the measures they've taken. Um, a second thing I would think about is the important, to me, one of the lessons we're going to learn is the need for a more nationalized response. That this patchwork of state responses that Evan, you were asking about, um, uh, that our federal system serves us well in many ways. We've got great state variation when we've got states experimenting with interesting things, but it is not serving us well when we've got a national crisis because states are reacting in different ways. We're, we don't, we're not seeing the federal leadership that I wish we had. And, um, and so we're seeing these different state responses. And my fear is that means that this um, epidemic is going to last longer because it's going to move around and then take hold in places that didn't take as dramatic action early. And um, so, so I think that lack of a national response and the way our system is set up, um, I think is, is, is a real risk for prolonging this. And then maybe the third thing that is, we're just starting to get a handle on, but that requires a lot more focus is the disparities that in our healthcare system that this is shining a light on, that are actually being magnified by the outbreak. 
I think when it started, people talked about this was going to be the great equalizer, that everybody was going to suffer and that class and race um, were not going to matter. And instead, what we're seeing is that they matter acutely, right? That the disparities inherent in, in our system and the structural racism that were operating in our system to begin with have just been magnified. And we're starting to see data um, you know, showing that, um, that you're starting to see that by race, especially African-Americans are much more likely to be, um, to be suffering from COVID-19 and to be dying at much higher rates. And that probably reflects a number of things that they have higher disease burden coming in as a result of structural racism. It also may have to do with the effects of these social distancing measures that certain populations may not be able to socially distance because of economic factors. So this is, we need to keep on um, peeling the layers here. And, but I think I want, I would recommend people to start asking these questions of um, health equity and health justice and what can we learn. And when we come out the other end, what can we do to strengthen our institutional systems so that we have a better chance um, the next time this happens of 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 having a much fairer system. Um, I mean, because I think it is just tragic as we're seeing this play out, these disparities and these inequities. Some important, hard to hear words. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But I think this is an example of where at Princeton, we've got so many people thinking about these issues is that where hopefully we can help be a what I like to call a policy feedback loop for the policymakers to highlight these disparities. And, and we can do that by talking about them now and highlighting them. And in my work, working with states to make sure, this starts with reporting. How do we report the data so that we're talking about it and that it's in, it's in the sunshine and we're, and we're um, recognizing these disparities and then, and then sort of, you know, and then, and then planning how do we, how do, we do better going forward. So, you know, one of the major concerns currently is that healthcare systems around the world have proven to be inadequately prepared to handle infections at this scale. And your research has deeply analyzed how healthcare is organized and delivered and how improvements can be made. So what are some of the structural weaknesses that COVID-19 has illuminated and what are the most critical areas for improvement that, that you see? So that's a great question and one that I hope we'll be grappling with as we come out of this crisis and think about how to be better prepared next time. But to me, what we've learned is that our public health system has been underfunded and neglected for too long, especially coming out of the, the recession in 08 and 09. And, and part of the problem is that public health itself, when it's successful, you don't see it. It stops, it stops disease spreading. It, um, you know, it, it, sometimes, uh, you know, we forget about public health. It's in the background. And, but our core public health programs are the ones that identify an outbreak, often trace that outbreak and then contain an outbreak before it gets to be um, a pandemic. And uh, we've just seen that our country didn't have that capacity. We didn't have that capacity at the CDC to produce tests. We didn't have that capacity at, at the state and local level to trace the contact, to test people and then trace their contacts once we knew people had tested positive. So we had a real infrastructure problem that after years of disinvestment, I think that is that is a real concern and we're gonna face calls 
hopefully when we come out of this crisis stronger to that we're going to need to go back and bolster that public health system okay great thank you and in certain times like this it's often helpful to try and identify uh you know some possibilities um or or things that you're seeing that give you hope and i'm just wondering you know what are some new developments you see that 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 do that for you well we were talking earlier about you know we just um, marked the 10th anniversary of the affordable care act and it's worth reflecting that if we didn't have the affordable care act we would have had 20 million more uninsured people it's provided a good basis upon which to respond that more people have had health insurance um, and we've been better suited than we would have been 10 years ago so i think that's one thing i like to point to um, but with that comes the fact that we still have far too many uninsured people and and too many cracks in the system uh, so i think you know it's possible that covid 19 and the pandemic may provide a political opening for more progress that as people come together and say wait a second um, um recognizing that everyone having health insurance ensures that our community is safer maybe it will move us a little bit away from that individualistic approach that americans too often take um and will people will have a much better recognition of the of the importance of universal access to universal health care and maybe there'll be more uh, political support for progress forward so that that's one thing that you know I, that tries to give me hope another has just been i think there's going to be much more of a recognition of the importance of our social safety net and um of those first response we're redefining who a first responder is right and there's much more of a recognition of of uh, the people who are, who are making things work for us now and we're much more appreciative of uh, people throughout our society who are sacrificing for us so i'm hoping there's more of that sense of supporting through from a social safety net perspective those first responders and we've seen now congress has passed three um covid 19 response bills um th that are intended to help respond to the crisis but also provide economic stimulus and i've been impressed that those have been bipartisan and um you know have been pretty bold action thus far and i'm hoping that congress will be open to a fourth and a fifth and probably a sixth this crisis is so deep we're going to need more we need more of a federal response and finally i've been heartened by our state and local leadership here in new jersey our governor has been a calm sober data-driven leader responding and um you know and i think and we've seen that leadership from a number of governors across the country and so i'm hopeful i'm hopeful by the leader i'm you know i'm, I'm hopeful because of the leadership they've provided well this this whole conversation is actually really close and personal to, to my life. I have a daughter who has um, a lot of severe special needs and so she's mm -hmm. immunocompromised as well. And, um, you know, I'm just wondering if you've heard anything um, about that population of, of families and, and kids um, and, and how this crisis is affecting them. Well, I mean, so two things. One, I mean, it's, it's for your daughter. That just is such a reminder about why we're doing social distancing right and and why that message needs to get out and why so many of us in public health were so frustrated to see the people on the beaches in florida saying well what do i care if i get covid 19 well actually it matters because you're jeopardizing so many people whether the elderly or people who are immunocompromised so i think that 
people are understanding that better now and that's good and it is for her that we are doing this and that's on you know i hope more and more people are understanding that so i think there is more sensitivity there um but you know when you talk about young people i do worry about when we're going to get back to school and the, our schools especially k through 12 are a place where people where a lot of kids who are at risk in in way in, in, whether it's on health or in other ways um, access services and and so that safety net is not as strong when schools are not meeting whether it's through school um, lunch programs or other other services that are provided through schools so you know a lot of that assumes that people are in school to access those services and so i do worry um that that safety net has been um, weakened because the schools aren't you know because everybody's home now yeah we're really lucky we have um we're really lucky we live in the state of new jersey because we qualify for in-home nursing and uh, um and has that continued it has um we've 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 decreased our nurses to two from a larger group of people um so we're going some of the shifts are going unfilled but that was a calculated risk on our part because those two nurses can cover almost all the shifts between the two of them um for instance you know right now our our nurse is spending time with our daughter um we're not she's not getting the the therapy you know mm -hmm. occupational therapy physical therapy speech therapy, vision therapy that she would normally be getting at school. Um, and you make a great point, right. that, you know, uh, but on the other hand, our nurse knows our daughter really well uh, and, and she's able to, to supplement a lot. So it's, it's helpful. Um, that's great. And I'm so glad they, and they're being careful and they're healthy and they're, yeah, yeah. Well, and the nurse, yeah, the nursing company has a lot of really good protocols Mm -hmm. already in place just as standard practice um so it we can pretty we can you know move forward with this plan with a decent amount of certainty but you know also with the knowledge that we may have to make some really harder decisions down the line in terms of whether we're going to continue to have um folks in our house mm. yeah 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 my grandmother's 101 and living at home and 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 it's the same issue of like who can this whole issue of how to provide home care um, for vulnerable populations is really tough. Um, yeah, I mean, these are all the issues, but yeah, well, I'm glad I'm glad you were able to keep that up. Yeah, we are too. We're really lucky. Well, thank you so much, Heather, for your time. It was really wonderful to hear from you. Some really extremely valuable information, things that people need to hear. So hopefully people will listen and and uh, we can, you know, get folks practicing social distance, wearing masks and gloves if they have to go right. in public and, and all that stuff. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Let's Talk About, a production of the Pace Center for Civic Engagement. This podcast is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Pace Center for Civic Engagement.